Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, formerly a podcast of presidential campaign curiosities, now a curious podcast about the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. What happens when a fabulously wealthy scion of a wealthy family comes to Washington with a rich man's portfolio? Portfolio. That's not to be confused with portfolio. Full of switchbacks and puzzlers and confusing private dealings. A fellow who has family wealth entanglements also. One of two things happens. Either the politician is given a thorough teeth cleaning by lawmakers in Congress and responds with a full hangout, providing all the information in minute detail, tax returns, financial details, going back dozens of years, and is then allowed to serve after putting all of that forward, or the good citizen's private affairs are met with very little interest, no scrutiny, and everyone goes back to that novel they were enjoying. No big deal at all. One of these things happened to Nelson Rockefeller when he was named Ford's vice president in 1974. According to Sherry Dillon, it was the latter. No one much cared about Nelson Rockefeller's finances when he became vice president. It was a big yawner. But Sherry Dillon is wrong. Who is Sherry Dillon and why does it matter? Our whistle stop today is January 11, 2017. And Donald Trump, the current president, President Donald Trump, then President-elect Trump, is announcing his plans to disconnect himself from his vast Trump holdings. He doesn't have to do anything, the president-elect tells the audience, because he's going to be the president. And the president doesn't have any conflict of interest rules. But he's going to go... Above and beyond, anyway, and he's going to announce a new set of rules disconnecting himself from his companies. To explain what's going on, he calls forward his lawyer, Sherry Dillon, who opens her remarks with this historical point. As you know, the business empire built by President-elect Trump over the years is massive, not dissimilar to the fortunes of Nelson Rockefeller when he became vice president. But at that time, no one was so concerned. Is Sherry Dillon correct? No. Here's a clip from Face the Nation from September 22nd, 1974, when Nevada Democrat and Rules Committee Chairman Senator Cannon sat down with the panelists on Face the Nation to discuss Nelson Rockefeller's nomination and the questions his committee, that is to say Cannon's committee, would pose to Rockefeller. Senator Cannon, as your committee begins to investigate Nelson Rockefeller as because he's been named to be the next vice president, you're going to run into the fact that the Rockefeller fortunes permeate almost every part of American business life. Under such conditions, can there be a conflict of interests, or do you just uh, have to ignore all that? I think this is one of the most serious problems that the committee has to deal with, because the conflict of interest statutes do not apply to the president or the vice president, though they do apply to officers and uh, uh, people Uh, working in the executive branch, and they also apply to members of Congress. But this is one of the big decisions that we're going to have to air to the American public and let them decide whether or not a full disclosure is adequate to cover this problem. Here's how Richard Norton Smith describes the level of scrutiny uh, in the House and Senate in his wonderful Rockefeller biography, On His Own Terms, A Life of Nelson Rockefeller. Quote, the hearings degenerated into what one Rockefeller supporter called, quote, financial voyeurism. No one was interested in his qualifications for the job. They only wanted to know how much money the Rockefeller family had. Our story begins on Saturday, August 17, 1974, and the new president, Gerald Ford, 
New president after Watergate and Richard Nixon's resignation calls Nelson Rockefeller at his weekend estate in Seal Harbor with a conditional offer for the vice presidency. The condition was that he would, he, Rockefeller, would have to go through the nominating process. And the concerns were his health, skeletons in the closet, which related to potential women in the closet, live and attractive women in the closet, not skeletons in the closet. That would be creepy. Uh, And also, finally, and most important, Rockefeller's finances, although maybe not most important to Ford, but most important to the purposes of our narrative. Was Rockefeller willing to undergo an exhaustive examination, Ford asked him, by the FBI and the IRS? Rockefeller was the grandson of the legendary John D. Rockefeller, founder of Standard Oil and the founder of perhaps the largest and certainly most famous fortune in America, Rocky. His grandson had been elected the Republican governor of New York four times and had run for president three times. He had once referred to the vice presidential job as the repository of standby equipment. (laughs) But when it was offered to him by Ford, he was on for it. And Rockefeller told the press, I'm in a position of a relaxed desire to be helpful to this nation in any way I can. Relaxed desire. It's very groovy, but it was 1974. The New York Times wrote at the time, quote, his manner seemed to fit right in with the style that President Ford is trying to establish for his administration. An administration that will speak plainly on weekdays and play golf on Sundays. In Rockefeller's conversations with Ford and his team, it turns out it wasn't for him the complexity of his finances that he was worried about. In a conversation, he said, it's going to get public, isn't it? And the staffers said, yes, it will get public either formally or through a leak. And he said, in that case, he had a confession to make, which was how much I'm worth. It's not as much as everybody thinks. One day after President Ford announced Rockefeller's nomination, the Washington Post gave front page attention to the latest story about Richard Nixon, the resigned president. The Post ran a story that said the House voted 412 to 3 to accept the report on impeachment. By resigning, Nixon had ended the move to impeach him, but the House Judiciary Committee considered it essential to keep going and and, and write down all of Nixon's crimes. And so in a 528-page report, the committee and again, this is released the day after Nelson Rockefeller is is nominated by Ford to be his vice president. 528-page report, the committee detailed the full story of Watergate and Nixon's actions and how he had ordered himself the cover-up of the break-in. Why is this important? Well, the reason the investigation into Rockefeller's finances was such a big deal was not simply because they were complicated, but because the hearings were being held in the era right after Watergate, when lawmakers, and particularly Democratic lawmakers trying to embarrass Republicans, were concerned that simply taking a politician's word for it wasn't good enough. They had all just been given a thorough education in why just trust me wasn't good enough, and also why politicians elevated and ratified by public elections, as Nixon had been twice, nevertheless, or perhaps most precisely because they were elected by the people, uh, had to have themselves uh, scrutinized. So, in this Watergate context, it's why when Rockefeller was nominated on the first day in three different appearances in, in the press, two on television, one on radio, he m- mentioned the word openness. Ford, on the day he was sworn in, had said, quote, in all my public and private acts as your president, I expect to follow my instincts of openness and candor. It doesn't take a weatherman to know 
that there was so much talk about openness and candor and so forth because they were operating in the shadow of Watergate. And this is why openness became a norm. When we talk about transparency, it's because we have a history where transparency didn't exist and that caused damage. So we maintain the norms of transparency so that we don't have to relitigate and experience this all over again. Some norms we should throw away because these norms get in the way of the people and of the representatives being close to the people. There are plenty of norms that protect the powerful, but norms that are created to build transparency, norms that are on the side of the people, those are of a different kind. And we, when we discard those norms, we're doing injury to the people. So when Donald Trump says he doesn't need to turn over his tax returns because he was elected and that therefore means the country doesn't care, he's using the people to validate the crushing of a norm created to protect the people. That's a different kind of norm than the one, the ones created to protect the fat cats. So then the question becomes, why not turn over the tax returns for Donald Trump? Why not keep faith with a norm intended to protect the people? Of course, the tricky thing is that the norm of turning over the tax returns was started by Nixon. So let's be clear that turning over tax returns doesn't protect the republic entirely from those that would try to undermine it. Here's what Robert Hartman wrote in Palace Politics, which is about the Ford administration. He writes that Rockefeller was picked above Bush and Rumsfeld and others who Ford had been noodling for the post because he had no association with Nixon. Here's Hartman. Quote, Nelson Rockefeller, on the other hand, had been the recipient of Nixon campaigners' dirty tricks for years when Watergate was nothing more than the drainage end of Washington's Rock Creek into Foggy Bottom. A little Watergate humor there from Hartman, picking back up again here. Considering Ford's determination to restore public confidence, put Watergate behind us, and bind up the bitter divisions it had inflicted on our political system, what could be more logical and more dramatic than linking himself with Nelson Rockefeller at the outset of his administration? So... Watergate both explains the norms of the time, sorry, explains not the norms of the time, it wasn't a norm, it not only explains the hypersensitivity to openness and disclosure and investigation of the time, but it is also the initiating moment when norms of disclosure and transparency become codified in our modern politics. This is the origin moment. Here's how Hugh Sidey of Time Magazine characterized the pick and the general state of things in the Ford administration. For 10 years, the nation has suffered from cardiac insufficiency. Now the heart is beginning to pump again under Jerry Ford. One can feel the renewed strength running through the federal government. The transformation is doing so well, not from mystique, but from candor. Not from majesty, but from humility. Not from complexity, but plainness. There's that important word, candor. You see in all this coverage of this, and I'm going to give you more of it, candor, openness, plainness, lack of subterfuge. Everybody's dying for it. Tom Braden of the Washington Post writes, it has also proved that the art of public relations is a useful art. He's talking about the Ford administration here. That it need not disguise or conceal, but may be used wisely, talking here about the public relations art, may be used wisely by well-meaning and honest men in order to make it clear that they are well-meaning and honest. So the point here is that norm-maintaining doesn't just tell us about the thing being disclosed, in this case Rockefeller's tax returns 
and his personal financial dealings or what else, but that the maintaining of transparent norms is an act that sends a broader honesty message for an administration. That's what Braden's writing about, that broader honesty message. So that transparency is both a specific act and a symbolic act that has a real purpose, which is to elevate trust and honesty. And why do you do that? Because the administration is going to do a lot of stuff in your name as a public citizen, and you want to know that when nobody's watching, they're behaving themselves. You, an administration should seek to fill up the bank of honesty and trustworthiness so that people feel relaxed and give them the benefit of the doubt. And this, of course, is why history is important and why Donald Trump's lawyer was tr- what they were what, what she was trying to do was more than just an act of ignorance. And let's stipulate, by the way, now that many times on the Whistle Stop podcast, I have said things that have been wrong, not by, you know, by mistake. So, of course, it's a perfectly fine thing to do to make a historic analogy that is wrong. But when the historical fact you are using is an attempt to rewrite the norms of American politics, what you're doing is trying to fool the public. You may not be trying to fool the public about the specifics of your client's finances, but you're fooling the public about the context in which those finances should be understood. And this is done for the purposes of lowering the level of scrutiny and lowering the expectations of the public for your client, who is going to be the most powerful person, arguably, in the world and who will be doing things in the name of the public. So it's more it's a more active bit of foolery than straight up lies, but it's not some fact slip-up. And since this norm was created for the purposes of informing the public, it's pretending that Rockefeller had no issue, and thereby Trump shouldn't have an issue, is an attempt to fool the public on the behalf of a candidate who is presenting himself as the public's candidate. Once Rockefeller had been nominated, almost immediately he was peppered with questions about his wealth, his holdings, and his every last detail about his vacation homes and values. Here's how Robert Hartman puts it in Palace Politics. The newsmen immediately zeroed in on whether Rocky would disclose his personal finances as fully as Ford had, and he rather testily told them he would not answer their questions before they were put to him by the appropriate Senate and House chairman. Rockefeller had a personal net worth of about $62.5 million income from trusts, a $16 million combined lifetime tax payment, $69 million in gifts or pledges, and $53.3 million he had given to charity. He said that the suggestion that such figures might give him an inordinate influence over the public policy as vice president was, quote, a myth. I never felt the disadvantage, Rockefeller said, nor did I have a feeling of guilt. He's talking about his wealth here. I just felt that money brought with it tremendous opportunities and responsibilities. It is a tool, a sharp tool, and if you use it badly, you can get cut. A quick aside, if it's a truism of whistle-stop and the humility we should bring to political analysis, it is a truism we never get tired of examining. And so one more little side road to examine that truism. On August 21st, 1974, a few days after Rockefeller had been nominated by Ford, and before the long process of getting him confirmed, the New York Times famous political reporter R.W. Johnny Apple wrote a piece celebrating what a political coup it was for Rockefeller to join Ford. Quote, Ten days ago, politicians were asking whether the Republican Party could survive. Today, they were asking whether Democrats were going to mount a challenge in 1976. You'll remember from your Whistle Stop 1976 podcast, the Reagan-Ford edition and the much more extensive treatment in the Whistle Stop book, which you have by your bedside, 
1976, it looked like a dark year for Republicans. Republicans are people too, you'll remember, was the slogan from the Republican National Committee because the party was in such a basic kind of trouble after Watergate. They had to print buttons to keep their spirits up at the old RNC headquarters. And what Apple was was suggesting in his piece of August 21st, 1974, was that the fortunes had changed. I'll read more now from that same article. Among Democrats, continues the article, They suddenly see themselves faced with the prospect of trying to defeat a Ford-Rockefeller ticket in 1976. There was little question that Mr. Ford had made an intelligent political decision. Well, that saves us a lot of trouble in 1976, one Democratic senator said gloomily. As for the Republicans, the selection of Mr. Rockefeller almost certainly writes an end to the presidential dreams of Governor Ronald Reagan of California, who is 63 years old. even though he has not ruled out the possibility of challenging Mr. Ford in the primaries of 1976. Well, as Whistlestop devotees will remember, this story turns out very differently than it appears in this August 21st look into the crystal ball. First of all, Rockefeller would become a liability for Ford. He would ultimately drop, be dropped from the ticket because conservatives thought Rockefeller wasn't conservative enough. And of course, Ronald Reagan would indeed challenge Gerald Ford in 1976, lose to him in the primary, bloodying Ford so much that the Democrats would win the election. But back to our story. September 23rd, 1974 marked the beginning of Rockefeller's confirmation hearings in the Senate. This is how the New York Times described the point of the hearings. It would become a significant exploration of the extent to which one individual or at least one American family might influence the course of national policy through its wealth. I've got to tell you, Mr. Rockefeller, told the committee, I don't wield economic power, nor he said, did the combined influence of the Rockefeller family, despite its vast holdings in oil companies, banks, and industrial securities. Mr. Rockefeller suggested that he would be only too happy to answer questions, bear any records, or, if deemed necessary, place his financial holdings in a blind trust to satisfy those in Congress making the decision for the electorate. You'll remember that Donald Trump's lawyer, Mrs. Dillon, said that divestiture, selling the business, or committing its assets to a blind trust would be forcing Trump to destroy his business. The chairman of the Senate committee described the extensive investigation that lawmakers on his committee had gone through in order to evaluate Rockefeller's nomination and his finances. There were 2,000 pages of FBI reports, 300 agents working on the issue, and 37 field offices. They have investigative staff also for the Senate committee working, uh, and the Comptroller General's office was also working on it. The Joint Committee on the Internal Revenue and Taxation Committee was also brought in, and the Library of Congress did a great deal of work as well. Another sidelight, just so you don't think crazy conspiracy stories and fake news are something from our modern world, while Rockefeller was nominated and was going through this process in the committees, a man identifying himself as Mr. Long telephoned one of the president's closest associates and suggested there was evidence linking Rockefeller to the 1972 campaign of dirty tricks. The claim was that from this Mr. Long, who met with one of Ford's aides in the White House complex, the claim was that the papers once in the possession of Howard Hunt, who was one of Nixon's dirty tricksters and a convicted Watergate conspirator, might still, those papers might still be in existence and might show that Rockefeller had paid thugs to disrupt the 1972 Democratic National Convention and, and get George McGovern nominated. 
So a brief investigation was started and nothing was found of substance uh, to substantiate the claim. But anyway, it was a bit of a sidelight to uh, an investigation here. Meanwhile, while everybody was waiting for Rockefeller to get nominated because it was taking so long, there was a lot of coverage of House Speaker Carl Albert, the Democrat from Oklahoma, who, because Rockefeller was taking so long to be nominated, had his own Secret Service protection because he was next in the next in line of succession. As the hearings continued, they exposed a jaw-dropping series of gifts uh, that Rockefeller had given to associates on his public payroll. Most of, the, most of them were loans subsequently forgiven to get around New York's ban on such payments. Uh, his gifts were made to attract and retain his uh, public servants that worked for the government that wouldn't stay if he didn't give them gifts. And among the beneficiaries were Henry Kissinger, who received $50,000 following a costly divorce settlement. He gave others, people, upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars, one person, Bill Ronan, got $625,000 in loans and gifts. In all, Rockefeller bestowed almost $3 million on to 20 different individuals. That freaked everybody out because there was, first of all, a law in New York, an anti-tipping law. But it also showed a man who, behind the scenes, was trying to you know, influence people and trying to use his wealth to influence uh, people. There was also an issue that came up in the Senate hearings about uh, Rockefeller's record of tax compliance. In 1970, he paid no income tax. (laughs) And so uh, you may remember that Spiro Agnew resigned as vice president because he had uh, been accused of uh, tax evasion. Another problem was that Rocky had financed the publication of a biography critical of a Democrat who had opposed his reelection as governor. The 1970 campaign biography was intended to hurt Arthur Goldberg. And Rockefeller's problem is that he said at first that he didn't finance the book. Later, he confessed, let's face it, I made a mistake. I made a hasty, ill-considered decision in the middle of a hectic campaign. So all of this kind of scrutiny started to hurt his poll numbers. And here's a story about about the Harris poll. The causes of Rockefeller's sharply eroded support are apparent from the results of the latest Harris survey conducted November 1 to 5. By 54% to 28%, a majority of the public feels it was, quote, not at all right for him to give $2 million as gifts and loans to people he appointed to high office. That's a $2 million figure. is different than the $3 million figure. There seems to be some dispute. Although the former governor has maintained that these gifts were acts of generosity, his critics point out, and the public agrees, that it is improper for public office holders to receive gifts or personal loans from another individual. An even larger 58 to 15 percent majority feels that Rockefeller was, quote, wrong to have his brother finance a negative book about his 1970 opponent for governor of New York, Arthur Goldberg. In the post-Watergate public demand for honesty and forthrightness in public officials, continues the article, both the issue and the Rockefeller's handling of it after it became public and had badly hurt his chances for public approval. Finally, by 47 to 34 percent, plurality feels that there would be a conflict of interest if he were confirmed as vice president because of his family's financial holdings and investments. So much time is consumed by the inquiries into Rockefeller's wealth that people started questioning whether the 25th Amendment, which dictated the rules for replacing a vice president, should be repealed or revised. The process was just taking too long. The leading advocate, one of them anyway, for changing the 25th Amendment was Ted Kennedy. Here's a New York Times article 
quote, the Massachusetts Democrat believes the campaign trail method is a better way to test the qualifications of a candidate because the focus of the campaign is more likely to be on judgment, competence, and ability than on the ethical financial questions that are preoccupying the congressional committees charged with evaluating Mr. Rockefeller's fitness for office. Anyway, despite all of that, Rocky makes it through the Senate, and now he goes over to the House where things are a little bit tougher. The hearing opened with a statement from Peter Rodino, the New Jersey Democrat who became famous during the Nixon impeachment hearings, quote, we must attempt to measure the network of Rockefeller family wealth and place it into perspective of both the American economy and the American political system. Faced with questioning about the size of his and his family's wealth, which lawmakers thought made a conflict of interest inevitable, Rocky said, the reports, quote, of the interlocking nature of the family's holdings are totally misleading. The questioning went on at such length about his finances in the House that during the session, Rockefeller eased his hoarseness with Gatorade and throat lozenges. I sounded like I needed a uh, throat lozenge myself um, there uh, as I said that. Rockefeller agreed that he would ask his family to withhold from him any information about their investments concerning a request from one member that Rockefeller's wife place her holdings into a blind trust. All he would say is she wants to think it over. Another representative questioned Rockefeller's independence with his family, saying that their huge contributions to his political campaigns were sufficient indication that the committee must examine your family in its totality. And this is where things got tricky, because on the eve of his November 21st appearance before the committee, Rockefeller learned that one of the congressmen had asked that he offer complete disclosure of all financial and property holdings by every member of the Rockefeller family, approximately 70 in all. And Rockefeller told his advisors he couldn't do it because the truth was that he'd made different financial provisions for each of his children. And so if he revealed everything, it would have destroyed the family. So... Ultimately, they were they found a workaround. Republicans claimed that uh, the Democrats were dragging out the nomination in order to keep Rockefeller from being confirmed before the November election so that he couldn't hit the campaign trail and work for Republican candidates. Rodino, the chairman of the committee, said Ford's finances were simple and he was known intimately by every member of the House. Rockefeller's finances are extremely complex and we're checking very closely for possible conflict of interest in regard to various public positions he has taken. Ford, of course, had been nominated by the 25th Amendment as well when he came into Nixon's cabinet. So at the end, Tip O'Neill advises the White House that in order to help Rockefeller get through to cultivate members of the Congressional Black Caucus. This is Richard Norton Smith's book again on this. And he says, cultivate the New York delegation, heavily Democratic, and spearheading the effort, which, and so the the Ford White House does that, and spearheading the effort was Brooklyn's Shirley Chisholm. And she basically turned out to be an advocate for Nelson Rockefeller, demanding of her liberal colleagues, quote, where were you when Nelson Rockefeller was standing up for women's rights? She also mentioned that women had been and their lives had been transformed by New York's pioneering abortion law. She singled out for mention the environmentalists aided by Rockefeller's pure water water program, organized labor, his position on minimum wage. She wrote to every member of the House Rules Committee arguing against delay, as well as the 15 members of the Black Caucus. Think about that for a moment. You have an African-American woman advocating because a Republican vice presidential nominee had the right position on abortion. So ultimately, Nelson A. Rockefeller, one of the nation's richest men, became the 41st vice president of the United States on December 19, 1974, four months after he had been nominated. It took that long to wind through his financial affairs. 
and the issues raised by them. For the first time, the nation had both a president and a vice president chosen under the 25th Amendment to the Constitution rather than by a national election. The House completed its vote, and the 66-year-old former New York governor was... Uh, he was sworn in by Chief Justice Warren Burger, and it was the first time the Senate had allowed television cameras of its floor proceedings. The process didn't need to be four months. Undoubtedly, it was delayed because Democrats didn't want to have Rockefeller out there campaigning for Republicans. But the number of newspaper articles in my stack is vast. All of those articles relating to the inquiries into the complexities of Rockefeller's holdings and how they would affect his job. Given that Donald Trump is now not going to turn over his tax returns, we may very well be learning a lesson afresh about transparency. Yeah, that is, if history is any guide. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistlestop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com, or even better, leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word and lets people know that it exists. Head on over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistlestop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistlestop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who really swung into action at the last minute for this switch to this topic. So I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistlestop. I'm John Dickerson. Thank you.